Happy Mother's Day to you moms today. Grateful for you. Grateful for what we just got to do to celebrate child dedication. What a rich day to, for our families to formally say, Lord, we need you. We need your help. And church family, we need you in this as well. Child dedication is far more about the parents than it is the children. It is the parents' recognition of saying, we, we need God's help in this endeavor, and we need the church in this too. So we're formally asking that God would work in such a way. And when I think about Mother's Day, when I think about child dedication, when you think about we, can, we have this natural progression, we have this beautiful picture right before our eyes of legacy, of legacy, especially passing on the most important things to the next generation, things of faith and uh, scriptures and the gospel. I love that uh, sermon intro video that we have right now. If you didn't get a chance to see it, you want to watch it again, get it on our social media pages and check that out. It's a rich uh, video to remind us of the legacy that's come before us. We didn't get here in this church totally on our own. We, we stand on the shoulders of saints who have come before us to pave the way of a legacy of the gospel that's before our eyes and what we get to live in now as well. How often do you think about your own personal legacy, your own personal legacy? <clears throat> do you think at all about the impact about what you're leaving for generations that will follow you? See, I tend to be a, a pretty big picture thinker. I'm the one who kind of has calculated how, or how much longer until my kids leave the house. I'm the one who's thinking about graduation parties and rehearsal dinners and all these kinds of things already. My wife, on the other hand, tends to be a more day-to-day -day kind of thinker. And, and all of my you know, thinking in the clouds, she'll remind me, Zach, enjoy this moment too. But I say, I think we balance each other out quite well, that the daily moments make most sense when we have the big picture perspective before us. But in, if you think I'm a big picture thinker, why well, one of my really good friends uh, um, makes me look like I'm a small-minded uh, kind of guy. He has a 100-year plan for his family. He's trying to think about what the things that he does now with his kids and, and, and how they're developing so that they, he leaves a generational impact on those who follow him. Think for a minute the importance of that kind of legacy. How many of you know the first names of your great-great-grandparents? A handful, okay, I'm seeing a few. But many of us don't know them. But believe it or not, those impacts, those people, even for people that we don't know and for people that will come generations after us that, we don't, or that won't remember us, what we do now matters for them. Now, when we think about legacy, there are any number of important institutions or causes that we can invest in that will outlast us. Go to any hospital or school and you'll go past names of people who contributed significantly, whether financially or otherwise, so that those institutions can exist. And those are wonderful things to invest in. And there's, there are numerous causes or institutions, again, to invest in. Yet, some of the most important things that we can be remembered for, some of the richest legacies to invest in, do not require a wealthy bank account. The best legacy is not in dollars counted, but in lives invested. The actual value of a legacy is not just in how people remember us, but in how our lives inspire a future generation to live 
faithfully. And it's no different than with the gospel. Today we be in a sermon series through Paul's second letter to Timothy. Second Timothy, called Gospel Legacy. This is Paul's final letter that he wrote before he died. It's written with a kind of urgency and seriousness and deep affection. Paul is in prison, and now while he had been in prison before, he, when he wrote 1 Timothy, he was likely on some form of house arrest. So it was, he was arrested, he was in prison, but he had quite a few privileges and rights as part of it. Well, now in 2 Timothy, he's on death row. He recognizes that, that this will, it is not likely that he'll be freed from this situation. This letter, too, is not addressed to a broad church, but to a person. It's written to an individual. This is kind of like Paul's last will and testament, but it's also far more than that. Paul is not simply uh, worried about getting his affairs in order. He's not updating his will so that the right people get his possessions when he dies. No, he doesn't mention anything about his belongings except, hey, bring me the, the cloak because it's, or the coat because it's about to get cold. Bring me those parchments. He mentions those later in the letter. But his biggest concern is about those who follow him. He's writing a type of moral exhortation. He's trying to inspire Timothy, his young protege and young pastor, to be faithful in gospel ministry. As I was thinking about this season in our church and, and praying about the direction that we want to take us, 2 Timothy just so easily came to mind. As a young, newly installed pastor, it seemed appropriate to begin where many pastors end. Oftentimes, as a pastor is coming up on retirement or transitioning out of ministry, he'll go to 2 Timothy as this final exhortation to his church. But I wanted to take it more from Timothy's perspective. As this young pastor, pastoring a church, like, what are we supposed to embrace and live in in the now so that we might stay faithful? As we consider what it means to embrace and live a gospel legacy that we think about passing on then to others. Through this series, we'll see various elements of what it means to be part of a healthy church, to be a healthy church leader. And this includes everything from preaching to discipling to living godly lives. In fact, if you want a, a resource to help you with that, outside of our resource center, we have a, a book that I'm recommending a lot to our pastors and elders and, and our staff has read it called What is a Healthy Church? That book's really helped summarize some of the Bible's teaching on what some main elements of what a healthy church should have. And I think a lot of it comes from books like 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, along with 1 Timothy and Titus, are part of a genre of scripture called the pastoral epistles. They're written uniquely to pastors about what does it mean to live in and to cultivate healthy church. And if I have any desire as part of my, my ministry here, it would be to help us remain and pursue being a healthy church on mission. So in this series, we'll learn of what it means to live and leave a gospel legacy. Turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible, one of our hosts will gladly provide one for you. Just raise your hand. If you don't have a worship program, they'll also provide one of those for you as well. But 2 Timothy. Again, this is in the context of Paul's um, beginning demise. He recognizes that he is close to being poured out. He is, he is close to the end of his life. And he writes this with a kind of urgency and affection for his young protege. If you would, turn there and stand in the honor of reading of God's word. While I read from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. 
To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is God's word. You may be seated. So as we begin this series in these first seven verses, we see the context, then we realize the relationship of this legacy. We leave a legacy for the next generation. So our main idea today, if you're following on your worship program, our main idea is this. We disciple the next generation to embrace and embody the gospel. We disciple the next generation to embrace and embody the gospel. The gospel. We'll walk through this in three uh, uh, phases or three points. We'll see the joy of this discipling relationship. We'll see the sincere faith that is the goal of that relationship. And then finally, we'll see the ministry confidence that that sincere faith leads to. But first, discipling produces deep connection and deep joy. Discipling produces deep connection and deep joy. The first several verses in this text explain the relationship between Paul and Timothy. Verses 1 and 2 are a typical greeting, but we should not pass over this greeting too quickly. Greetings matter. When you think about writing an email or even an old-fashioned letter, you're thinking about the person you're writing to, and is this uh, email, is it okay to get away with a, hey guys, what's up, or hello friends, or uh, does this require a, a dear sir or madam, or to whom it may concern, Or if you're following the Hamilton musical, are you concerned about where that comma goes? And is it my dearest Angelica or my dearest Angelica? Where does that go? Um, But greetings matter. we got to think about this. And and this greeting from Paul to Timothy is not all that different. Paul writes, I am, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, these verses give us the context of this relationship. Notice Paul asserts his status as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He, he has apostolic authority by the divine will of God. The apostles represent the foundation of the early church being built. On their authority and on the authority of the word, the church was being built in the beginning. In Ephesians 4, verse 11, we see this progression of the church being built through the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and the pastors. The letter of 2 Timothy represents this page turn from the apostolic era to the post-apostolic era. What I mean by apostolic era, that means in the life and the ministry of the apostles as the church is being strengthened and built, as the New Testament is being written. But as those guys pass on into the post-apostolic era, those who remain should have no fear that the gospel is losing its power. See, this is an important reminder for us. It would have been natural for any church, it would have been natural for Timothy to be worried about the, the, the power of the gospel as the Apostle Paul is on his way out. Think about that. 
Think about this man who, who represented so much authority. These apostles who were with Jesus, they witnessed the resurrection. And in the power of the Spirit, they built these churches. And, and they're wondering what's going to happen now that they're gone. Paul writes 2 Timothy to encourage those who remain to say, even if we're gone, the power of the gospel remains. A gospel legacy, brothers and sisters, is not about one individual. You may get worried as your favorite teacher, as your pastor moves on. You may get worried about what will happen when this wonderful teacher is no longer around. Brothers and sisters, we need not platform people over the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is far more important even than the apostles. And Paul is writing to remind Timothy about that. As he passes on, a gospel legacy is more significant. So notice that he says that he is an apostle by the, by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is on a, in a Roman prison on death row, and yet he still confesses of the life that is in Christ Jesus. We, we sang these songs already today to, be, to remind ourselves that there is life in Christ even if death comes. One of our, my favorite hymns that we sing begins with, What is our only hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. That, that Paul is recognizing, he writes according to the life that is in Christ. There's life in Christ, not life in Paul. Timothy may be worried about as his mentor passes on. But the power of the gospel is bigger than any one individual. The gospel's impact is wonderful. So we may grieve as those spiritual heroes pass on. But we do not despair because our hope is in Christ and the power of the gospel. Paul calls Timothy then my beloved child. That's obviously a term of endearment. In 1 Timothy, Paul calls him my true child in the faith. But here it takes on an even more, uh, an even more intimate term. See, this discipling relationship, again, produces deep joy and deep connection. So Paul can call him my true child. Now we need to define what do we mean by discipling. I think discipling simply is helping others follow Jesus. Discipling is helping others follow Jesus. And that can take any form or fashion. That might be somebody that you meet with weekly through prayer and the ministry of the word. You're reading books together. You're part of groups and all those kinds of things. That's a very intense kind of discipling. But there might be other kinds of discipling that, that are simple, that are helping teach classes, that are praying for people, that are every handful of months that you're still just checking in with one another and, and praying for one another and letting know, how can I help you follow Jesus? One gentleman in our church who's discipled me over the years simply just calls me a few times a year and, and asks how he can pray for me. But as we disciple one another in any form or fashion, in any measure of intensity, that creates deep connection among our church family. Think about the person who's had the most significant spiritual impact on your life. That person likely feels like a second father or mother, a big brother or big sister to you. Paul calls Timothy, my beloved child. Deep affection. Paul writes, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors 
with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. See, a gospel legacy goes way back. It's the continuation of faith. Paul is trying to say that, that the gospel that he has served, that he has served God with a clear conscience, as did his ancestors. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the continuation of the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is passing this on now to the next generation who are following him. The gospel, the faith once delivered to the saints, the gospel is in continuation with true Judaism. If you're not a Christian here today, and you're, one of the questions that you need to answer is to explain the rise of the early church. Why would, why would the church spread so rapidly when nobody wanted it around? Realize, no one liked the first century Christians. The Jews saw the Christians as a repudiation of true Judaism, so they persecuted the Christians because they weren't following Yahweh in the way they thought was necessary. The Romans and the Greeks didn't really like Christians because Christians had the, had the boldness to be able to say Jesus and Jesus alone. See, they were fine with Jesus being one of many gods, but not Jesus the only God. So when Paul says, I serve my ancestors, or I serve God with a clear conscience, he's trying to say, while he's in prison, and he might be tempted to wonder, was it worth it? He's saying, absolutely it was worth it, because Jesus really rose from the dead. I saw him. There were many other witnesses who saw the, who saw the resurrected Christ. So of course I serve God with a clear conscience. I'm not worried about what's facing me because I know even if I'm in, in prison, I'm in prison for the right things. His conscience was clear. So Paul prays for Timothy. Prayer is a significant ingredient to the discipleship relationship. He was constantly in Paul's prayers. And maybe there's a touch of hyperbole here, but, but praying for disciples is natural to the relationship in a discipling relationship, in, in discipling, mentoring kinds of connections. You may think, you know what, <clears throat> I don't have all that much to say. I'm not updated on the, the young adult lingo. I don't really know how to connect with the next generation. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm kind of worn out. I don't have all that much time, whatever. But friends, you can always pray. You can always pray for the next generation, for young people and our church and outside of our church to embrace Christ, to persevere in faith. See, they're scattered here. We see this, that prayer is an active part of this relationship. We see this affection that is included here. Paul continues, I remember your tears. I long to see that I may be filled with joy. If there's anything of the last couple of years that we've learned is that nothing can replace face-to-face -face interaction with people. Nothing can replace face-to-face -face interaction with people. We might have wonderful technology. We might live stream services. We might have FaceTime and Zoom and all those kinds of things. But nothing replaces the interaction, especially that believers have with one another. I feel akin to Timothy here. Paul's reminding him of his, of his tears that he felt. There's a, a deep affection that this discipleship relationship had. There's a deep love and connection that they had with one another. And Paul's reminding Timothy that we're going to see each other again one day. We'll have that kind of face-to-face -face interaction. We're separated over miles, but Paul continues to pray. And he continues to look forward to that kind of connection. Discipling the next generation creates joy and connection. 
Maybe for, for those of you who serve in Grace Kids or in VBS, you take great pride in, in how you see God working in those students. For those of you who volunteer with youth or young adults, it might be laborsome, it might be tiring at times, and yet you, you, you see their success, their maturity as part of your joy. You celebrate that there's no greater joy that you have to see children, your children, walking in the truth. As you think about praying for young families here, these young families who have stood before us today to commit to raising their kids in a way that honors Jesus, we, we are stirred with that kind of connection and affection for one another. I've said long before that my first ministry experience was not in some kind of pastoral internship, but it was holding the door with my dad at church. The, the, the spiritual people who invested in my life first were not pastors, but it was Ron and Jan Stewart when, I taught, when they were teaching sixth grade Sunday school. It was in an older Ella Lee Risser, who's still alive today in her late 90s, who was patient with boisterous young boys when we were five and six years old. It's in Tim Simmons, who had to keep a couple of middle school students, including me, back from Sunday school a couple of times to uh, remind us how to behave. But friends, it's those deep affections that we develop for one another as we seek to disciple and mentor the next generation. Thanks for all of you who serve, who take an opportunity to lift up and encourage the next generation because somebody did that for you. If that's you and, and you're patient in pursuing young families or young kids and the next generation to encourage, to hang in there with the gospel ministry, thanks. And for those of you who aren't, what holds you back? What holds you back from just simply finding a young family and saying, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Thanks for being here. If there's anything I can do to help. What holds you back from taking out uh, somebody who's younger in the Lord and just saying, how can I pray for you? How can we, let's get together every so often and just catch up on life. See, when, a, when we're part of a church that's mutually discipling one another, that's handing off to the next generation, that's a healthy church. There is too much work to expect simply the pastors, the staff to be doing all this. No, this needs to be an all-swim kind of activity as we disciple and lift up the next generation because it produces deep connection and deep joy. But this discipling has a grander objective to it. It's not just in getting to know people. It's not just in those connections. It's in the point, the objective that it is, that this second point, gospel legacy inspires sincere faith. Gospel legacy inspires sincere faith. This is where we're going to spend a little bit more time even. But Paul encourages Timothy by moving beyond their relationship to faith in Christ that their relationship is really built on. Look at verse 5. Paul writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. Notice that term, sincere faith. Throughout the Bible, that term's translated as sincere or genuine. Literally, it means without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. This is the goal and inspiration of a gospel legacy, that it will result in a sincere or genuine faith in the next generation. Paul uses the word then as dwell or lives to describe this faith. It's as if this faith has residence inside this person. It's sincere. It's genuine. It comes knocking at the door. It's faith at home. It's, it's dwelling inside that person. And, and Paul can see this in Timothy. I'm reminded of your sincere 
faith. A gospel legacy's goal is sincere faith, genuine faith, in those who come after. Now, before explaining the significance of sincere faith, we need to notice those who, who poured into Timothy's life so that that sincere faith would result. We've mentioned already about Paul, a type of spiritual father, a non-family but spiritual father, mentor to Timothy who was building into Timothy's life. But we notice here in verse 5 that Timothy's grandmother and his mother were significant uh, relationships to build in that kind of faith as well. And this is the Mother's Day aspect of this sermon. The women in Timothy's family had a significant spiritual influence in Timothy's life particularly his grandmother and his mother. We learned about Timothy's mother in Acts 16. And we noticed that she was Jewish, but that she was a believer. And that it's clear that this text teaches that his grandmother must have been a believer in Jesus as well. These women used their familial roles to encourage Timothy spiritually. And later on in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Paul writes to Timothy to say, Continue in what he had learned, knowing from whom you had learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Timothy was plenty familiar with the Bible. It had been taught to him a long time. And both his family, his mom and his grandmother, and then a spiritual father, a spiritual mentor not family, were included in that legacy, which is a good reminder to say we need both in our relationships. We need the family to encourage one another to to hang in there with Jesus, but we also need other adults, mentors in our life, and to be mentors for others. For any of you who don't have your own children, that does not, you, you are not missed or not missing an opportunity to still be a spiritual influence or mentor in the life of another Christian. You're an important role and that peace. In the light of those reminders about the role of faith in the family and in the church, I want to make a couple of observations that I think help us with some application in light of what we're seeing here. A couple of observations and applications. First, do not underestimate the privilege and responsibility of a Christian home. Do not underestimate the privilege and responsibility of a Christian home. Many of us start our testimony with, I was born and raised in a Christian home. And sometimes we say that almost sheepishly. We're almost embarrassed that we only have kind of like a B-plus testimony. But do you realize what a gift of God that that is? We may think of growing up in a Christian home as being boring or mundane. But that makes us way too much of the center of our own story. What if we began our testimonies by saying something more like this. What if we say God was so kind to give me Christian parents who took me to church, who read the Bible with me, who taught me from a young age about who God is, that he's holy, righteous, and good, that he created me in his image. Therefore, I value and worth because of how God created me. But my my sin separates me. I've heard this from from the time I was small. My sin separates me from this holy and righteous God. Therefore, I'm under his right wrath and separated from him from eternity because of my sin. But then I heard this at an early age that Jesus came and lived and died for me. On the cross, he took my punishment. He was my substitute. And in, in simple faith and repentance, I responded And Jesus forgave me. He changed me. And now I have a reconciled relationship, personal relationship with God. 
See, friends, one of God's ordinary means of passing on a gospel legacy to the next generation is through the Christian family. I'm thankful for that legacy in my life. On this Mother's Day, I'm particularly grateful for the spiritual influence of my mom. My mom and I are a lot alike. We both like to teach, and we both talk with our hands. (laughs) But her conversations with me over the years have had a significant spiritual impact in my life. I remember... You know, just knowing that she was praying for me. Always asking how she could pray. During college, I'd come home, and Saturdays, we'd go to the grocery store, and uh, we would just have conversations about life and how things were going. She made a significant spiritual impact. And moms, on a day like today, what, as you think about the gospel legacy that you're living and leading, what are you hoping that you're investing in your kids? The most important. Dana Lawrence, our director of women's ministries, Uh, We were talking about this text this week, and she said that moms in particular can feel a lot of pressure to wonder, am I ever doing enough? Or have I done enough? And you may feel like you haven't. And regardless as to where you're at on that spectrum, sister, you can start today. And that's not just for moms, that's for every godly Christian parent. To say the gospel legacy that we want to lead and live for our kids and want them to embrace is something that's important to all of us. And again, some of the people that I know with the the greatest gospel legacy have no children of their own. But they've invested and mentored and taught young lives for their entire life. They've not allowed that the the lack of children, physical children, to hold them back. They've said, no, I'm going to use all of my gifts and talents for the good of those who come after me. So how do we do that in a church? Three quick applications. How do we do that in a church? First, Mentors. Mentors. This is for yourself. If you're parenting, whatever generation or however old your kids are, find somebody a generation or two ahead of you and ask, give me some insights. How did you get through that season? How did you invest spiritually in your kids in this part of it? And then, again, non-parent types, how are you being a mentor to those kids too? I'm so grateful that I have my kids to point to others' examples in this church to say, that's what it looks like to be a godly Christian. That's what it looks like to walk with, God, walk with God in maturity. That's what it looks like to have a true relationship with Jesus. Mentors. Secondly, the church coming into that. The church. How can we prioritize church relationships that would be evident that we're discipling the next generation? Because our church relationships are so important. Do they have priority over other gatherings? Are we willing to say no to even good things for the sake of discipling our children in the context of the local church? Uh, Dave prayed this earlier. It does, or someone said this, it does take a village to raise a child. But the Christian is the one who's able to say it takes a church to raise a child. We don't do this on our own. We need one another. And in the context of that, those church relationships, parents, what if on the way home, everybody just took took a turn saying, what's one takeaway you had from Sunday school class or the sermon on Sunday morning? What's God teaching you? How can I pray for you? Mentors, church, and thirdly, testimony. Testimony. Kids, take an opportunity this week to ask your parents to tell them their story of how they trusted Christ. To, to, to share the story of what, how they came to realize who Jesus was and that he is the son of God and they trusted in him. But take an opportunity to hear that story. And, and friends, parents, 
Encourage them with those words. What if that could have a significant spiritual impact on their lives? So the Christian family and the church are God's ordinary means of passing on the gospel legacy to the next generation. And the second application in light of this is to allow genuine faith to play itself out in the long term. To allow genuine faith to play itself out in the long run. Notice, again, that Paul is convinced, he's persuaded that Timothy has a sincere or genuine faith. He must have watched this play out through any number of scenarios. He'd watched Christ transform Timothy's life. He watched Christian virtue take on in Timothy's life. He watched Timothy endure hardships, suffering, and persecution. It was clear that it was a wholehearted devotion. Are we willing to play the long game with the faith of the next generation? One quick convicting comment, I think, for all of us is that what if the next generation struggles to embrace a wholehearted devotion because they've seen us not embrace Christ with a wholehearted devotion? Could our faith be seen as hypocritical? Are we living the kind of life in front of our kids and grandkids and in front of our church family that could be described as sincere? And then as well, are we willing to play the long game with our kids and grandkids? At times, I think well-meaning Christians, and again, it's not a question of motive, but I think well-meaning Christians will work to make child decisions the most decisive marker in a young person's life. So now don't get me wrong here. Don't misunderstand me. We want to celebrate where we see kids choosing Christ. We want, to see, we want to celebrate where we see God actively at work in a young person's life. And yet we want to, along with the, the parable of the soils, also have a wait and see aspect to us as well. That we water that seed, that we cultivate that seed, that we pray that it would produce fruit in due time. So it's okay for us to not be hasty with administering even baptism and communion for, young, for younger kids. Because we want to allow that to be a sincere faith, not an inherited faith. The faith in the next generation needs to be a sincere faith, not an inherited faith. Let's play the long game. Now, allow me to again qualify. All of this is under the providence and sovereign will of God. If your child has walked away from the teaching they grew up with, do not despair. Simply keep praying. One of the most fantastic stories in the history of the church is, this, is uh, of one of the, the church leaders, a church father, in this, again, the, after the apostles had passed on. But Augustine was this great theologian in the early church, one of the biggest impacts on the whole church. But in his younger years, he was a wild child. In fact, some of his sins were, are, are difficult to talk about publicly. But nevertheless, his mother, Monica, continued to pray for her son. In his confessions, which are a type of like autobiographical prayer, Augustine writes this about his mother. To, to God he's praying, writing, Yet from your heights you stretched out your hand over me and drew my soul out of, the, out of this dark abyss. Since my mother, your servant, was crying more abundant tears than mothers would cry for a dead son. She knew that I was dead. From the faith that you breathed into her, you heard her, Lord, heard her. And heeded her tears, so freely flowing from her that she moistened the ground beneath her as she prayed. Augustine likens his mother's prayer to the parable of the persistent widow who prayed that God would work, that prayed over and over that God would change her circumstances so 
Mothers, parents, continue to pray unceasingly for your kids who aren't walking with Christ. God is good. He hears you. And even if he doesn't answer your prayer in the way that you would desire, he is trustworthy and we can go to him. Kids, if you're here with your mom and dad just because it's Mother's Day, maybe you would intellectually already say, you know what, I'm no longer walking with Christ. I've rejected the faith of my youth and, and that's not important to me. I no longer believe. Thanks for being here. Thanks for honoring your mom and, and coming today or watching. But can I encourage you? To, would it, could you be, is it possible that you could be wrong about where you're at with Jesus? Or is it possible that you should simply doubt the doubts of your young adult years and consider whether or not the faith of your youth is really true? We sang a song earlier that talked about this old, old story that rescued me. What if that's really true? What if your mom and dad weren't exactly idiots when they were bringing you here? Now all those can be challenges. You might have real intellectual challenges with that, but just walk through those intellectual challenges. Could it be true that the faith of your youth is more true than the doubts of your young adult years? But a sincere faith is a goal of the gospel legacy. It's passed on through relationships and ministry partnerships. And those relationships and that sincere faith leads to a final point that's about ministry confidence. Sincere faith leads to ministry confidence. So far, Paul has reminded Timothy of their relationship. He's affirmed that, but he moves forward here. Look at verse 6. For this reason, that reason is the sincere faith that's in Timothy... Fan into flame or rekindle the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. See, Paul is writing to Timothy to remember his giftedness, to remember how others saw this. Fan into flame or rekindle the gift of God. He's trying to bolster Timothy's ministry confidence. As, as Paul passes on, there's no reason to be concerned about the power of the gospel commentators would say, what's this whole issue of laying on of hands here? Well, most commentators would, would suggest that it's Timothy's ordination. It, Timothy may have had an installation service, not all that much different than what we had last week here. But that memory of that ordination service is meant to reinvigorate him. It's to restore his confidence. It's to remind Timothy of his solemn oath to proclaim the gospel. And we see this all throughout the New Testament, that the laying on of hands is meant to be an outside, external reminder that people see God working in those individuals, which is a good reminder for us. Anyone who would sense a call to ministry or a call to missions, the first thing that you should do in that is to go talk to one of our pastors or elders or a ministry mentor in your life to see if that internal call you feel is also affirmed in an external call within the context of the local church. Can you see this? And, and what Paul is doing to Timothy is to remind him, Timothy, we've seen God working in your life. We know that God is with you. We've seen your giftedness. You can do this. Paul talks about the spirit. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. There's kind of a debate on whether that word spirit should be capitalized in reference to the Holy Spirit or in a lower case to recognize some kind of spirit within Timothy. For dramatical reasons that I can't go into right now, I think it should be lowercase 
And yet, I think the gifts of that are the fruits of the Spirit. Again, if you want to talk about the grammar there, we can talk another time. But in any case, we see that it's the gift of the Spirit who is welling up these things in Timothy. That it's a spirit of love, of power, and self-control that the Holy Spirit is working alongside Timothy to empower him for ministry. Brothers and sisters, what if we were the kind of church that looked to affirm where we see God working in younger people or in just in our church in general? What if rather than just saying a, a, a pass away thank you, where you said, you know, I see God working in your life. God is ministering to me through you as you serve, as you teach, as you sing, as you do whatever here. Where can we affirm God's good work in people, especially in younger people that can bolster a ministry confidence. Sincere faith leads to a ministry confidence. As we conclude, let me ask another question. What are your feelings towards the next generation? Annoyance or opportunity? See, we disciple the next generation to embrace and embody the gospel. Next year, our church will turn 60 years old. We've talked about this a little bit. Where will you be when our church turns 100? 40 years from now. See, if, if we're only concerned about our day and age, if we're only concerned about our lives, if we're not thinking about a gospel legacy that outlasts us, then like a former pastor here, Dave Plaster, used to say, the, the, the gospel or the church is only one generation from seeking, ceasing to exist. We have a responsibility to invest a gospel legacy in the next generation who will embrace it and embody it and be on mission to go to the future, places that you and I might not make it. We stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us and generations that follow us will stand on our shoulders as we're faithful to Christ, as we're looking to disciple, mentor, and lift up the next generation so they would embrace and embody the gospel. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thanks that the truth of your word, the power of your gospel outlasts us. It's bigger than any one individual. So in boldness and faith, we can mentor, we can teach, we can train, we can embody, we can encourage, we can pray. So the next generation of Christians will live out the gospel in their day. Thanks, Lord, for so many people here in our church that are looking for ways to encourage and support that kind of mission. And I pray that we would see our responsibility in that under your sovereign plan and providence, but that we would see the opportunity that is before us for the next generation of Christians. In Jesus' name, amen.